And now, it's time once again for the show that gives glorious voice to 25 million business owners across the fruited plain. Radio Free Enterprise with Frank Felker. Thank you, Dude Walker. Yes, indeed, I am Frank Felker. Welcome back to Radio Free Enterprise. My guest today is Steve Kahn. Steve is a partner at Bridgewater Capital, and he's the best-selling author of the investment book, Microcap Magic. Steve Kahn, welcome to the program. Thanks, Frank. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, regular viewers and listeners will know that in recent episodes, we've been talking about selling your business. And we've talked about different ways that that can happen, but one way we haven't discussed is selling your business to the public. What, uh, what we're going to talk about today is three, there are a lot of different ways that you can sell your business or, or go public with your business. But today, Steve and I are going to talk about just three. We're going to talk about IPOs. We're going to talk about something called a SPAC. And we're going to talk about reverse mergers. Now, have no fear. Steve will explain what all those things mean and what they might mean to you. But let me start out with this. I want to make it clear what Steve and Bridgewater Capital do. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to read it to make sure I get it right. Bridgewater Capital is a capital markets advisory firm that helps companies go public and navigate being public. In 25 years, they've been involved in over 100 transactions, totaling well over $1 billion. So does that uh, button it up pretty well as far as what it is that you guys do, Steve? That's the high level. That works. All right, well, we'll dig into the weeds, right, starting right now. So I want to start at a very foundational level. What is the difference, Steve, or what are the differences between a private company and a public company? Well, a private company is often referred to as what, uh, also as a closely held company, meaning there are uh, several or a couple um, known shareholders. These are two partners that founded it, like you and I did years ago, Frank. Uh, or it's, uh, you know, friends and family have helped you start a business, uh, but it's private. It's only in the, uh, that little cocoon of uh, well-known shareholders uh, is the company owned. A uh, public company sort of by definition has anon anonymous shareholders. These are shareholders that come in uh, through various mechanisms to be a shareholder in the company, and they may have very small stakes uh, in the company, and that company is typically, although a public company is not always publicly traded, I'll get to that in a minute if you like, but um, uh, it's uh, uh, shares that are held that can be bought and sold you know, through your brokerage account. I see. Now, what about, as you mentioned, uh, you and I had been uh, business partners in the past, and uh, we did, and we'll talk about this further, uh, how we brought that company to become a public company. One thing that I want to drive at, though, as far as the difference between a private company and a public company, from the perspective of the business owner, is sort of the, the fiduciary duties and the, and the reporting requirements and that type of thing. Um, can you give us, you know, I, I, there's so many different things that have to be filed, but what, what sort of a burden would somebody be looking at from a reporting standpoint if they were to choose to go from private to public? Uh, well, to be a um, public company, as I said, means to have a certain number of shareholders or over a threshold. Uh, if you have over 2,000 shareholders, for instance, you must become a public company. You are required to under U.S. Hmm. law. Uh, and that uh, you, you have to report, you have to file your reports with the SEC quarterly and annual and such. Uh, but you actually don't have to become publicly traded. Those are two distinct things. So Interesting. Recall, 
Yeah, we call it uh, being public means you are publicly reporting. Uh, being publicly traded means you're publicly uh, traded. You're trading on an exchange or you're trading over the counter or what have you. Now, you know, unusually, you can actually trade but not be reporting to the SEC. And those are the stocks you might have heard of that trade on the pink sheets. Uh, mm. This is sort of a buyer beware market where they have enough shareholders to where there is a a reasonable expectation of a market developing in the stock, a secondary market trading back and forth between shares, but they have for either cost reasons or you know convenience, practical reasons, they don't uh, decide to actually report to the public. So there's less transparency. I see. And as one might imagine, we could really dig down into the weeds on a lot of these topics. Uh, but we, we don't have all day, so I'll try right. to figure out where we need to go farther down a rabbit hole and where we, we're gone far enough. Let's, um, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about three different vehicles through which a uh, firm could go public. And the first of those is an IPO, and that's the one that most people think of and, uh, and have heard the most about. Can you tell us, you know, what is an IPO? What does IPO stand for? And why is it that it's the one we hear about the most? Uh, IPO is initial public offering, and it is exactly as it sounds. It is the initial offering of shares in your company to public shareholders. That is those anonymous shareholders, typically. That is typically done through a brokerage firm, a broker dealer, an investment banker who has a clientele who are interested in you know, industries such as your business is in uh, and want to invest to make money. And uh, those shares are offered through the brokerage firm. They become your placement agent, your inter intermediary, or more specifically in an IPO, an underwriter uh, to get the capital you need in exchange for shares in your company that go out to those public shareholders. Now, why is it, do you think, that that's the one we've all heard the most about? It seems like those are the high-flying, you know, the newspapers are reporting about it and the business news channels and so forth. Is it because they're larger transactions or is it because perhaps these are better known brands? Why, why is IPO the thing that most people think of when they think of a private company going public? Well, it's long considered, it's been long considered, you know, the, the end game for a lot of high profile companies with big investors, venture backed companies, uh, you know, they're backed by venture funds where that is the holy grail to become public, uh, provide liquidity for previous, you know, uh, existing shareholders when the company was private. Uh, and so it tends to get the headlines uh, because it's sort of, you know, part of the American uh, dream story of, hmm. you know, taking your company all the way to the successful end. Um, the uh, other ways of going public are less sexy um, hmm. and frankly, not as profitable to the industry. And so they don't tend to get the kind of press. To the financial services industry? Correct, yeah. I see. You also, you just mentioned the word liquidity and something that I remember uh, a phrase bandied about quite a bit was liquidity event. And, uh, right. and I guess that's part of the dream of the shareholders. And perhaps the biggest reason why people think they want to go public is because they're going to have a liquidity event where they're going to be able to sell a lot of shares and make a lot of money. And uh, certainly not right away, but at some point in the near future, uh, take a lot of that money from the shares that were sold and put it in their bank account. How frequently do you think uh, from that measure IPOs are successful? What percentage do you think? Um, 
Well, IPOs sort of by getting an IPO done, meaning you have an amount of money you wanted to raise and you've raised it, you've sold enough shares to the public in order to have met your minimum threshold for um, the amount of capital you needed. That in itself is a measure of success, right? And if the company executes, if the management team delivers on the promises they made during that process of going public and raising money, then that company will probably be successful. Uh, there's lots of examples of companies that have been wildly successful after an IPO. Uh, I would say, you know, a large majority of them do succeed, uh, but many of them don't, and it has to do with execution of the business plan, not, not, not having anything to do with whether or not they did it as a public company or a private company. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you know, there's, as you say, there's so many examples of different companies that went IPO and then, you know, did great or went IPO and now uh, their share value is lower than it was when it was first offered. But I guess your point is is well taken that just because it's below where it was offered initially doesn't mean that the company isn't profitable or there wasn't a liquidity event or et cetera. But it does seem to me that I agree completely that you got to execute and you got to execute a good plan. Uh, but would you agree or what is your take on this statement that there's a lot of pressure that comes with going public? And there's this whole thing about short-term decision-making versus long-term decision-making, where companies that don't have the pressure of being publicly traded and reporting and the news reporting and everything else, uh, the private companies uh, have a little bit more latitude in decision-making. Is there? Do you really think that the pressure I'm describing could actually negatively impact a company's ability to execute? Without question, um, there, especially in my universe, is microcap stocks. That's what the book is about, uh, mm -hmm. and that's where I've lived for 35 years and the 34 years in this business. Uh, the smaller the company, the, uh, the, the sort of the smaller, uh, the smaller the margin of error is to make bad in making bad decisions. And uh, the, the pressure is manifold, right? One, uh, you have to continue uh, access the capital you need to execute that plan. The smaller you are, the lower your market cap, the, the less your stock trades, the harder it is to, uh, to do that consistently. Uh, and that puts tremendous pressure on the company because not only are they trying to execute their business plan, but they also have their capital markets plan that they're trying to execute uh, and balance those mm -hmm. things. That's where, you know, Bridgewater steps in, into the fray often is to serve that function, to take that off manager's plate. But the other real burden is once you're public and you have anonymous retail shareholders out there that own your stock, uh, you do have this fiduciary responsibility um, to, you know, do what's in the best interest of shareholders uh, and must put shareholders first. Uh, and uh, that comes with it a huge regulatory burden and a lot of risk for management and the board of directors, which since Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, which was an act passed uh, uh, you know, many years ago, uh, management and um, uh, the board are really on the hook, both personally and uh, corporately, for decisions they make that might adversely affect shareholders. Wow. And that's, uh, that's something I just feel as though business owners and leaders need to keep in mind that, yeah, there might be a, a pot of gold there at the end of the IPO rainbow, but there's going to be a lot of new stressors that are on top of everything else that has to do with running your business that you've never dealt with before and that really can uh, impact you personally, have an impact on your quality of life as an individual. Now, um, I want to uh, use as an example uh, Tesla. 
Uh, and the reason I bring it up as an example is uh, maybe 18 to 24 months ago, uh, Elon put out this tweet and it ended up getting him in a lot of trouble with the SEC. Right. But he talked about he was he had the financing lined up, lined up to take the company company private at four hundred and twenty dollars a share. And I just throw that number in there because that may help people uh, spark their memory of it. And that quite caused quite a firestorm. But the reason I bring it up is he was sick and tired of all the pressure yeah. and all the yeah. uh, institutional investors beating on his head and what's when are you going to turn a profit and everything he was going through with trying to get Model 3 production on. So at that point, and this also happened with Dell Computers at one time, they chose to step back away from it. And I yeah. just use that as an example of this pressure that we're talking about is real. Um, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of what's it like to go back private again, but I guess I'll just leave it at that. I just wanted to make the example that there are companies that we all know about who have felt the pressure and decided we've had enough. It's a huge hassle. <laughs> so the next question I want to ask you is, I know that very few companies are either prepared to do an IPO or even have any sort of performance or business plan or intellectual property or something that makes them special enough to be considered to go public through an IPO. What sort of things does the investment community look for in a company in order for that company to be considered for an initial public offering? Um, they're looking for wealth creation, right? They're looking for opportunities to um, invest in a management team uh, and in a business model or technology uh, that is solving a major market problem, solving a, uh, you know, a, or, or addressing a very large market opportunity. Uh, nobody wants to invest in a company hoping that they double their money in 10 years. That's, you know, they're not looking for bank account type returns. Uh, they're looking for wealth creation, right? They're looking for the whatever it is, 300,000% Walmart substance, it's IPO wow. or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's a combination of market opportunity, uh, the management team to address and take advantage or uh, go after that market opportunity and the product or service or technology solution uh, that is a market fit for that opportunity. And if all those things are in place, uh, then that becomes a reasonably attractive uh, uh, public offering, provided that it's not too, too early, right? There are plenty of firms that will raise money uh, in a public offering or uh, otherwise uh, in a more speculative type of uh, opportunity, earlier stage. Uh, but mm -hmm. for the ones you hear about, the Teslas and the Palantirs and the, and the Lemonades and, 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 and so on, uh, these are typically big bets and uh, management teams uh, chasing very large targets. Interesting. You know, and a question just occurred to me that I hadn't uh, thought about previously, which has to do with uh, founders getting squeezed, uh, diluted their, their, their ownership of the company. This is another thing that I think a lot of people lose track of. They think of somebody like an Elon Musk or, a, uh, or Zuckerberg at Facebook, who still hold a tremendous percentage of the, of the shares, voting shares of the company. What, um, what sort of dilution might a mere mortal who wasn't a Zuckerberg or a Musk uh, expect to uh, experience going through the process, not only being going public, but even pre-going public when the, you know, uh, uh, venture capitalists and others are putting money in? Let's say he started, he or she started with 100% ownership of the company. What, <laughs> what sort of squeezes might they expect to encounter? 
Well, I have a different perspective on that, having been both an entrepreneur, an investment banker, an investor, an advisor to such companies. Um, and, and one of my mentors 30 years ago told me this, and it really stuck. And that is that uh, when you're, especially early in your business, uh, let's uh, call your shares are represented by stock, stock certificates, right? Uh, and these certificates are, you know, paper. Uh, and he would say to me, uh, dilution, you're trading paper for cash. It's the investor <laughs> getting diluted. But, you know, he's oh, I see, because he's giving you cash for your paper. Correct, and he's putting a hundred dollars, and you're, and he's only really getting only whatever it is, twelve percent of the value in present time of the hundred he's putting in, depending on how much of the company he's acquiring. So to me, it's more of what am I left with at the end as an entrepreneur? Uh, Steve Case, founder of AOL, uh, when he sold, when they sold uh, AOL to Time Warner. Uh, he had 1% of the stock left. He was the founder of AOL. He had 1% of the company. And the poor guy only made $700 million in that sale. That's great. What a great example, Steve. You really nailed that one. Thank you for that. Okay. Um, I want to move on from IPO, but is there anything relative to uh, IPOs that I haven't asked you or thought you wanted to share before we move forward? It's, it's, um, it's a tremendously uh, important decision. Um, there's lots of people in, in, uh, in my business, especially in my space, um, who are really, um, uh, what's the word, uh, they're, they're, um, uh, they're predators on companies and their stories. They hear a good story and meet a management team and they leverage that the great work a company's got done to get to a certain point mm -hmm. uh, to convince them to go public, whether it's an IPO or it's a reverse merger or a SPAC, as we're talking about, when really they have ulterior motives and, and there's, there's a lot of sharks uh, in the waters. We've got to be very careful. Um, and it's just a an IPO now is a very long, costly, frustrating process. Uh, you look at a company like um, um, a, a deal of a colleague of mine uh, ran in the biotech space. Uh, after a year of preparing, doing audits, uh, hiring attorneys, spending well over a million dollars just to prepare to go public, um, it didn't resonate with investors, and they had to pull the IPO, and uh, now they're just where they were a year ago, and they've no. spent a lot of damage to get to where they are and are no further along that path. Wow. Boy, that's a painful story. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk now about SPACs, and I'll let you tell us what that acronym means. But there's been a lot of reporting about SPACs recently, and I think uh, companies, uh, founders of, uh, and leaders of private companies may be thinking, oh, well, maybe a SPAC is the way for me to go. If you would, tell us what SPAC is an acronym for, and then what does it mean? Uh, so SPAC is a special purpose acquisition corporation, special purpose acquisition company, um, that is uh, really a management team that gets together with a sheet of paper with a plan. Then they go to an investment banking firm and says, look at my pedigree, the management team's pedigree. Look at my background, my experience, my Rolodex, uh, and back me. Give me $100 million, and my business plan is let's, go uh, let's acquire a company in this space, in the electrical vehicle space, in the uh, technology space, in the AI space, whatever it is. And then investors go public. Uh, the company goes public through investors through an IPO process, but there's no company. <laughs> hmm. 
uh, just right there. I thought I was with you every step of the way. And then you said they go public, but there's no company. What do you mean by that? Oh, they haven't yet purchased the company that has the electric vehicles or the... It's formulated and funded specifically for the purpose of acquiring a company. They aren't yet an operating company. They are leveraging the experience of management team and the capital uh, to then go find a company to acquire. And in doing so, in finding a company to acquire and acquiring that company, that company becomes public. I see. Basically, because they Mm -hmm. are distributing shares in the public company to the shareholders in the private company or swapping them so now the private company shareholders have shares in the public company and the public company is in that operating business a moment ago you said that uh, doing an ipo is a lengthy and painful process am i correct in saying that one of the advantages of the spac is that it doesn't take so long to execute the the merger and so forth and begin trading shares Absolutely right. Um, the company can look at the management team, the, the company wishing to become public and say, uh, yeah, I want to be in partnership with these guys or um, I want the, you know that capital to, <laughs> to do whatever I need to do to advance my plan. Uh, but yeah, that can be done uh, rel- very quickly relative to an IPO process and with much more certainty because you're already public. You don't have to worry about the IPO getting pulled. You don't have to worry about Am I going to raise the money I want to raise because the money's already been raised? Hmm. So there's a tremendous amount of certainty. Now there's its own challenges going through the SPAC process, uh, but it is a, um, a a cleaner, faster way to go public if everything lines up. And I would like to speak to those challenges in just a minute because I really want us to give both the, the potential upside and potential downsides uh, for each of these choices. But I want to speak to the example of Nikola or Nikola, depending on who you're speaking with which is the company that's competing with Tesla and has recently been in the news quite a bit, both because of their uh, process going public through a SPAC, and also there was a lot of controversy that had to do with their founder and some of their promotional stuff. We could talk about that for a long time, but I'd rather talk about their process of going public. Do you know much about the uh, nitty-gritty of that particular transaction? Uh, you know, the highlights, um, the EV business, the electrical vehicle business has been a particularly hot space in SPACs this year. Uh, there's been 160 SPACs done this year, this year, 160 companies gone public with no business yet looking wow. for targets. Uh, so there's a tremendous amount of uh, competition for great businesses. Uh, and they've, uh, because of that, they've kind of gone um, earlier and earlier and more risky in the companies they're acquiring uh, and uh, sort of following the hot se- sector, the hot um, you know, space, so that once the transaction is, uh, is co- consummated, uh, the stock performs, right? Because in the end, the management team who raised the money without a company yet, you know, they did it because they wanted shares in a company that performed. Uh, they want the stock to perform. They want their shares to be worth more. And so uh, the Nikola uh, deal was, you know, a, a bellwether deal in, in the last uh, several months. Uh, and it rocked. I mean, it was way up. Now it's come all the way back down to like an $8 billion market cap. At one point, it was in the like the 30s, I think, or something like that. And then the uh, CEO got in some trouble. Uh, and uh, that's what happens when you're public. Uh, now there's 100% transparency <laughs> into right. what's going on management in the, in the company. Yeah. That's a perfect example, isn't it, of uh, the difference? You know, they're shining shine the daylight on you and there's nowhere to hide. Now, let's say, uh, well, let me ask you, 
Would this normally occur, this type of uh, courtship, where the SPAC approaches the company that has the great business plan, or would a company try to shop itself to SPACs? Uh, both. Um, we have uh, at Bridgewater, we have uh, a, a company right now that flat out want to, they want to find a SPAC. There's SPACs mm-hmm. of all shapes and sizes. There's billion dollar SPACs. There's there's twenty million dollar SPACs. You know that have raised just twenty million bucks, let's say, uh, looking for the right business to merge with. Um, and so you can have it go either way. Uh, the uh, you know this this is sort of we'll get to the reverse mergers in a minute, but the, you know the SPACs are the new um, sort of. Uh, uh, unicorn. That, I don't want to say unicorn in our business because it has different meaning, but right. they're the new sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, un, uh, unattainable goal that all, mm. all these companies. I see. Have mm-hmm. out because there's so many of them out there looking for businesses to merge with. Interesting. And so let's say that uh, I was the, you know, I, I had some intellectual property. Perhaps I had an operating business, maybe even turning a profit. Uh, but I would like to go public so that we can scale and do this and that. What 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 sort of things will a SPAC find appealing? What can I do to help position my company to be more attractive to a SPAC? It's the same thing uh, with going public. You know, you really need a story that lends itself to being publicly traded, which is a big upside, right? Um, you know, to be hey, we're going to be the best dry cleaner on the planet. That's why you want to invest in us. Uh, we're going to grow because we're the best. Um, no no offense to dry cleaners, but uh, that is not the kind of story that is mm-hmm. you know, either IPO dollars uh, or a uh, SPAC uh, merger candidate. Uh, they're looking for big bets. You know, the Nicola thing, Nicola thing, um, you know, uh, EV trucks uh, with amp- companies like Amazon and all these you know major players in the market looking to electrify their fleets. That becomes a super hot space. Uh, that's where investors want to be. They want to be in the super hot spaces. And uh, um, you know, that the, the, all you can do is you need to shore up your management team and you need to really refine your narrative as to why you are a big upside investment opportunity for the current shareholders of that space. And, you know, you just reminded me of something that I learned uh, when you and I uh, were in charge of a a public company, uh, which is that there seems to be a divergence or there can be a divergence between what I would call a real business and a business that somebody would like to invest in. Uh, I remember in particular uh, making an investment presentation to a guy who had never managed uh, investment capital before, but he had $125 million to invest. And I was only asking him for $5 million. And he told me, well, you know, I don't, I, how about if I give you $15 million? Can you take this company nationwide in the next 180 days with $15 million? And I said, certainly not. The guy says, well, I don't think we have anything further to talk about. And uh, so what it was, he just wanted to minimize the number of deals that he would have to manage. And they were look. they figured, obviously, I should have said to the guy, oh, of course I can do that. You know, when do we, where do we sign the check? Uh, but in any event, uh, the point I'm driving at is that sometimes what makes you saleable to a SPAC or the investment markets is not necessarily that you're, a, a, let's say, a dry cleaner. They got great cash flow. It's primarily a cash business. If you had thousands of locations, God only knows what sort of revenue and profits you might generate. But that is more of a real brick and mortar business that is not of as much interest to the capital markets. 
Are there other types of businesses beyond, let's say, a uh, uh, electric vehicle or that kind of thing that is particularly sexy right now that might go down in flames and everybody loses millions of dollars, but would be attractive to SPACs and IPOs and so forth right now? Uh, well, I don't want to get, make it sound like brick and mortar businesses aren't, you know, potentially public companies. Uh, I think scale is important. You just thousands of location. That's a little bit of a different story. Mm -hmm. If there's a roll up play, uh, years ago, there was a guy called the, uh, the, the roll up king, Jonathan Ledecky, mm -hmm. uh, who, you know, half a dozen roll ups, USA floral, US office products where, you know, his, uh, none of them ended up doing fantastic, but for a while they did, where his whole pitch was, we're going to consolidate thousands of locations in these very sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, boring spaces. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And we're going to ring efficiencies out of that scale. Um, and they went public and they were wildly successful for a while. And then it kind of, you know, collapsed and under its own weight. Uh, but uh, so you can, Walmart is a brick and mortar business. It's one of the most successful stocks of all time. So it can, but mm -hmm. more and more these days, investors are looking for, um, you know, uh, real innovation, real innovative uh, IP protected kinds of opportunities to invest in. And there's, I, you can name any of them and there's going to be plenty of crash and burns, right? <laughs> exactly right. I mean, they are. I mean yeah. people remember in the 20s or 30s, there were 150, there were 137 different automakers. You know, wow. only three won, mm -hmm. you know, uh, until recently. And uh, there's plenty of those businesses out there now where there's just so many players and some are not going to win. Let's, uh, let's move on now to uh, reverse mergers. And... Uh, talk more about that. And just as uh, we've kind of been talking around it, Steve and I were partners in a company uh, during the dot-com era uh, that we were looking to go IPO or perhaps be acquired by a larger company. And, uh, and this is why at, I, you know, at one point in my career, I was the chairman of the board and CEO of a public company. And uh, my God, who would have ever believed it? And uh, that didn't go so well for us. And so we both want to make that clear. I, uh, we each have different ways of expressing it. The way I put it is, we all know that you learn best by your mistakes. And that's how I became an expert. And uh, this was, I don't know, 20 some odd years ago. I'm not, how long ago was that? Yeah, about 20. 21. Yeah, so it's been a while. And we took our lumps and, and learned a lot and moved forward. But the, uh, the way that we uh, became public was through a reverse merger. So would you explain how a, rever a reverse merger differs from a SPAC and why it can be a little more dicey? Yeah, so um, a SPAC is a type of reverse merger. And all reverse merger means is that the company being acquired is really the tail wagging the dog. That is the, uh, the operating business uh, that is the go forward story. It's the company getting acquired into the public vehicle uh, that is the, where the real value is. Um, and in, uh, in, a, in the case of a SPAC, they've specifically set out to create a public vehicle with cash in it, big difference, mm -hmm. cash resources to fund the acquisition and or expansion of the target company. A reverse merger typically uh, is a company that had already gone public with a different business plan, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, where it has failed. Uh, and uh, all that's left is the public 
you know, uh, infrastructure, the public shell of a company mm-hmm. where the management has kept up their public reporting with the SEC um, uh, or kept, uh, you know, the various things you have to do with transfer agents and, and, uh, and uh, you know, just shareholder management and stuff to keep it intact. Uh, and that in itself, because it's public and it has a trading symbol, uh, becomes can be valuable to a company wanting to go public because you have to have a certain number of shareholders uh, for uh, the exchanges to agree to let you trade on NASDAQ or over the counter or whatever. And so if you have a shell that already has that number of shareholders, uh, then that is valuable. It used to be much more valuable for reasons I won't go into now, uh, but even so to this day, Every day there's a reverse merger happening where there's some defunct public company out there hmm. with the stock symbol that's trading at one one hundredth of a penny or whatever and has a hundred million shares outstanding. And they find their company that uh, they like the technology, they like the story, whatever. Uh, and that company, for its own reasons, wants to be a publicly traded company and they merge. And the, you know, the predecessor company, the public company, uh, might issue a billion shares of stock wow. uh, in a company that's got 100 million out sh- uh, shares outstanding now so that the company being acquired actually is 98% of the post-merger transaction. And so then their um, idea going forward is, dear investment community, here we have this company that's an operating company that's turning profits and just needs to scale. And by the way, they're already public so that you will have a liquid market or a more liquid market uh, for the investment that you put in. You'd be more easily able to get it back at whatever point you'd like. Is that correct? Or is what what why would the uh, investment Um, community like this story? uh, That is the pitch. (laughs) (laughs) What the reality is, is often uh, considerably different. Uh, And as I mentioned earlier, there's, there's a lot of sharks in these waters. Right? There's 14,000 publicly traded companies, 10,000 of them are microcap companies. Thousands of those are shells, just, just hollowed out, publicly traded nothings. And promoters get a hold of these, these shells and they look for uh, suspects, prospects, and, mm. uh, and ultimately uh, merger partners. Um, and there are some good guys. I mean, Bridgewater ourselves uh, have participated in probably 25 reverse mergers over the years, either as an investor or as the poor uh, guys who invested in a company that went bankrupt that because of the structure of our deal, took over the publicly traded vehicle and then looked for a company. In fact, one of those publicly traded vehicles that we controlled and took uh, you know, to the market looking for a merger acquisition, uh, we found, the, I think it was the very first Chinese biotech company uh, that was traded in the United States. We acquired that company and ended up trading New York Stock Exchange, and that was wildly successful. Oh, that's However, great. They <laughs> right, but they don't usually work out that way because these things don't trade. They are not liquid. The promise to both the entrepreneur of the company and the founder of the company being acquired and to investors who are trying to get interested in that merged story is that, oh, once you're public, you you know, your stock symbol is there, this price is there, it's so much easier to raise money, it's so much easier to get people to invest in your company. And that oftentimes proves not to be the case. It is a huge, heavy, burdensome, difficult, painful, how many adjectives is that? lift uh, to get a stock from that point to real relevance as a publicly traded company. And uh, in all fairness uh, to you and I, I mean, 
a big problem that happened with us is, okay, now we've got the story, we, we're public, we're this or that, and it was the, the whole dot-com thing was collapsing upon itself, and then 9-11 occurred. And uh, that, that really changed uh, the, the features and face of the markets and made it very difficult for us to raise money. Well, right, and one of the, one of the things that just kills companies is that uh, rule number one in running a company, don't run out of money. Don't do what? Number one, don't run out of money. Oh yeah, no kidding. <sighs> and what happens, you become public, you are now completely at the mercy of your stock price. And because these companies tend to trade very lightly, you know, with very little volume, the smallest amount, relatively speaking, the smallest amount of, of selling of your stock, when there's an imbalance of sellers versus buyers, uh, can drive your stock down. Let's say you did a transaction and post-merger, the stock was at $2 or whatever. Uh, you know, a short, a small amount of selling can drive that stock down to 50 cents mm. and then 20 cents and then 5 cents. And if you don't have a real plan to get that story out broadly fast and with, with real support of that story, vis-a-vis -vis stock trading and buying and, and building a shareholder base, uh, it can be very painful to where you simply can't raise money. You can't because the stock is, you know, basically has little to no value. Well, Steve, we're just about out of time. I always like to ask what somebody's watching, somebody's listening. They're interested in spite of all those horror stories and, and caveats they've heard. They still want to learn more about it. Uh, outside of, of reaching out to you, what would you say is the best next step for somebody to take to keep moving forward? Well, let me first say uh, that uh, it isn't all doom and gloom. Um, you, there is a path to navigate, and it can be done successfully. Uh, and if your company is the right kind of company uh, for a public, uh, publicly traded story, uh, the rewards can be great for your shareholders, for you, access to capital, realizing your dream, executing your vision, whatever it is. Uh, there are some businesses where you have um, uh, suppliers that want transparency of you being public. There's some businesses where you're going to be able to attract the best talent because you're public. You have shares to offer. Mm, stock that's out. a good point. You can get it done. But to your question, Frank, uh, the, the, the step is to talk to someone, right? Uh, anybody like me, anybody, doesn't have to be me, but anybody who has the real capital market experience, uh, who has the scars to prove it. Frank has the one scar from the <laughs> one deal. We I've got a hundred scars, uh, which led me to write my book. Um, but uh, talk to somebody about it and, uh, you know, Floyd, you're certainly happy. Uh, I'm happy to talk to anybody, uh, anyone of your listeners, Frank, who uh, has an interest in finding out more about that. Well, and then what would be the best way for them to reach out to you to uh, connect? Um, best way to reach me is just through LinkedIn. I was an early adopter and I, I do a lot of my business there and I'm checking it all the time. And so that's a good place to start with me. All right. And if you're listening or watching, I will have a link, a link to Steve's a LinkedIn profile available for you to access. Steve, I appreciate you sharing so much wisdom with us today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Frank. Thanks again to Steve Kahn. And thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Frank Falker saying, I'll see you on the radio. Forgiving your entrepreneurial sins with a gentle wave of his microphone, here's Frank Felker.